Let me invite you to open up in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 38. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath a chair somewhere around you. You can find Psalm 38 on page 467 in one of those Bibles. And as you turn there, you'll notice there's a, there's a heading in your ESV Bibles that says something like a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. So this heading teaches us two things that are helpful for understanding this text. First, that it was written by King David, who, of course, was the second king of Israel. And, and um, it, most of the time, these headings have some sort of hint or clue as to when in the psalmist's life it was written. That's not the case for Psalm 38. We don't know when in David's life he wrote this. In fact, the text itself uh, doesn't really offer any clues as to exactly when in his life he wrote this psalm, but we're certain that David was one, the one who wrote it. And then we see also in this heading that it was written for the memorial offering, which at first glance sounds like a song that maybe a choir would sing as we take up the offering. But I don't think that's actually the, the correct rendering of that Hebrew word. It's not an offering being taken up. It, it's a memorial is, the, is the, the emphasis there. It's meant to be a reminder to David. John Calvin helpfully explains it this way. I rather think that the title indicates that David composed this psalm as a memorial to himself or for himself, as well as others, lest he should too soon forget the chastisement by which God had afflicted him. You see, this psalm was written by David kind of as a, kind of as a reminder for himself. Like a sticky note put on the fridge reminding you to grab milk on your way home, this psalm is a reminder for David. It's a reminder of the seriousness of sin. It's a reminder to David of where his sin has taken him in the past. And it's meant to be an encouragement for him to never again let his sin take him that far before he repents. In that regard, it's meant for us to be a reminder for us as the people of God to never let our sin take us that far before we repent and turn back to God. So let me now read for us from Psalm chapter 38. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible and life-giving word from Psalm chapter 38. A Psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. 
For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boasts against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love for our good. Now, this psalm is one of the many that are called the the penitential psalms. These are psalms where the author is confessing some sin to the Lord and just crying out to the Lord for his mercy. And the most famous of the penitential psalms, probably the one you're most familiar with, is Psalm 51, where David has just committed his sin with Bathsheba and gets confronted by the prophet Nathan and then comes to the Lord in repentance. But here in our passage, much more than in Psalm 51, David is sensing just the heavy hand of the Lord upon him for his sin. You see, this psalm really is about sin. It's about God's wrath due unto David because of David's sin and due unto each and every one of us because of our sins. And it's ultimately about the wrath of God that Christ took upon himself on Calvary's cross. So as we walk through this psalm together this morning, we're going to talk quite a bit about sin. We're going to talk about the discipline of the Lord. We're going to talk about the wrath of God. But I beg of you, stick with me, because there is salvation mentioned at the end of this psalm. We'll get there. I promise we will. But we've got to do the hard work of considering just the totality of our sin problem and just how deep it goes. So our outline for this morning, first the discipline for sin, then the aftermath of sin, and then finally the salvation for sinners. See, we'll get to the good news. I promise we'll get there. But first, let's consider the discipline for sin. David writes in verses 1 and 2, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. These verses should be quite striking to us. I'm sure as we sang Psalm 38 earlier in the service together, that you sang those words and were wondering, what are we singing? These should be striking to us. How can it be that David feels like he's being shot with arrows that are coming from the Lord's bow? How can it be that David, this man who's described as the man after God's own hearts, could be experiencing the wrath and anger of the Lord? This seems quite shocking at first, no doubt. But we need to understand what's really happening here. David is being disciplined by God. It's clear that he's committed some heinous sin against God, and God in his perfect wisdom and timing and sovereignty has caused David to experience the fullness of his discipline in this life. You may be taken aback to think of the the fact that God disciplines his children. You know, we tend to think of God primarily as loving and kind father towards his children, and he is loving and kind, and a loving and kind father disciplines his children when they go astray. Think of it this way. I would be a terrible parent if I let my three children 
punch and hit each other all day, then eat ice cream for every meal, and then run marathons with scissors in their hands, right? I would be a terrible parent for letting them get away with such things. Every good parent disciplines their children with the goal of correcting their behavior, of teaching them the right way to live. And it's the clear teaching of scripture that God, our Father, from time to time, will do this with his children. Consider what Proverbs chapter three teaches us. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So here Solomon is telling his son not to despise the Lord's discipline. Don't be afraid of God's correction in your life. And it's fascinating when you look forward to the New Testament in the, in the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews quotes from Proverbs, and then he adds this commentary starting in verse 7 of chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, we really ought not to despise correction. Discipline is not a bad thing. Rather, we ought to think of discipline as the loving hand of the Father gently correcting you and pushing you back in the right direction, bringing you back into holy obedience of his word. Now, discipline from God is going to look different in any number of situations. But for David, his discipline is coming in the form of physical ailments at the hand of God. Look back in Psalm 38, verse 3. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. A few verses later, he, he elaborates on this in verse 5. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. David is experiencing actual sickness in his body. This is not figurative language. This isn't poetic language. This is describing real wounds that were stinking and festering. David's experiencing this as the discipline of God. Now, you may be wondering, when is it in David's life that we see him dealing with physical ailments and sores and sickness like this? It's true. The, the rest of the Bible doesn't mention specific time of sickness in David's life. But the fact is that people in those days experienced way more pains and illnesses than you and I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, thank God for modern medicine that prevents most of the ailments that we see. Without it, we would be lost. It's rare for somebody in our times to get sick 
And it's a relatively rare experience that that happens. But in David's day, sicknesses and wounds and ailments were much more commonplace in the day-to-day life. Most likely, David was sick dozens and dozens of times throughout his life. So scripture doesn't record those instances just because they were so common in that day. It was a fact of life. And that highlights what's really happening in this passage. David would have experienced these sicknesses all the time, and yet he's able to discern that his current sickness and ailments are not just a common cold, not just another sore on his foot, but he's able to discern that they are the disciplining hand of God for his sin. Let me quote from John Calvin again. David, as soon as he recognizes his affliction as coming from God, turns to his own sin as the cause of the divine displeasure. For he had already been fully satisfied in his own mind that God is not like a tyrant who exercises cruelty needlessly and at random, but God is a righteous judge who never manifests his displeasure by inflicting judgments except when he is grievously offended. David experiences this illness and immediately sees it as the hand of God disciplining him for his sin. It's not just another cold. It's not just another wound. It's the discipline of God. Look back with me at verses three and four. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. David says that his iniquities, his sin, his rebellion against God is so plentiful, it's like floodwaters rising over his head. And where does he place the blame? He places it directly on his own sin. He fully and readily admits that all of the problems he's facing are due to his own rebellion against God. There's a sense in which David is actually giving glory to God in these verses. He's not blaming God for the discipline he's receiving. Rather, he places the blame where it belongs, directly on himself. Yes, God is the one exercising the discipline, but David earned every ounce of God's anger towards his sin. Matthew Henry explained it this way, if our trouble be the fruit of God's anger, we may thank ourselves. It is our sin that is the cause of it. So what are we to make of this? Are we to assume that every time we have a cold, it's God's discipline for us? Are we to assume that every setback in life has a one-to-one correlation with some sin we've committed? Of course not. Hear me, of course not. In fact, the Bible tells us that that's not the case. Let me give you two examples. The first from the book of Job in the Old Testament. Look how Job is described. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So Job was altogether a morally upright person, and yet he was stricken with great hardship, wasn't he? Some of the health issues that Job faced sound a lot like what David is facing in our passage. Look at Job 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. But Job was morally upright. 
it's clear that his sickness does not have a correlation with some previous sin. We could think also of the man born blind from John chapter 9. We read it. His disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We see again direct teaching that not all of our ailments, not all of our setbacks in life are due directly to our sin. You are not allowed to leave this sanctuary today and wonder if every stoplight you hit on the way home is directly caused by your sin. You're not allowed to do that. You need to be discerning about this. We need to contend with the fact that some of our setbacks, some of our illnesses, some of the things that we experience as hardship in this life, some of them might be the hand of God disciplining us. Dear Christian, it may very well be the case that the hardship or sickness that you're experiencing even today is the loving hand of the Father issuing you some much needed correction. It might be the case. So how can we know? How, how can we discern whether or not that's the case? James Montgomery Boyce, who was the, the longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he, he offers three really helpful questions that we ought to ask ourselves to discern whether or not the hardship we're facing is the disciplining hand of God. So the first question he says we should ask of ourselves is, have I sinned or gotten off the track of obedience to what I know I should be doing? And is this setback God's way of getting me back on track and into fellowship with him? You can think of this like in Psalm chapter 23. We know the shepherd is described as having a, a rod and a staff. Right, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, the rod is meant to protect the sheep from attacking wolves. The staff is meant to correct the sheep, to pull them back from danger. Sometimes the discipline and hardships that we're facing are God correcting his sheep. And this discipline is not always physical, like what David experiences in Psalm 38. Sometimes God's discipline looks like you getting caught in your sin and experiencing the earthly shame from others for your sin. God's discipline might look like relational conflict with your spouse or your roommate or a close friend. God's discipline might come in the form of a sermon that hits just a little too close to home. When you hear some specific sin mentioned and you feel just a sense of conviction about it, that may be God's disciplining hand on you, drawing you back to himself. The second question that Boyce asks is this, is God using this to trim off some of the rough edges of my personality and develop a more Christ-like character in me? In other words, is God using this trial to sanctify me, to make me more like Christ? This is similar to what James describes in the first few verses of the book of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It may very well be the case that the setback that you're facing is meant to, to disciple you, to sanctify you, 
to make you just a little bit more like Jesus. And the last question from James Boyce is this. Is God using my suffering as a stage upon which his name and wisdom may be glorified? Is it a place for me to show that I love him for who he is entirely apart from whatever material and physical benefits he may have given me? This would be quite similar to what Job was experiencing and what the blind man in John chapter 9 went through. That your hardship in some way is meant to give glory to God. So it's not the suffering, or that your suffering is not the, the disciplining hand of God, but God may be allowing it in his sovereignty for his glory and for your good. So here's what I'd urge you to do. Whether right now or in the future, whenever you face some sort of major setback in your life, whether it be physical ailments like David or emotional trouble with your spouse or neighbor or some other setback in your life, consider for a moment what might be the loving hand of God the Father issuing you some correction that you really need. Don't discount the fact that God's hand may be heavy upon you as he draws you back into obedience. So if that's the case, if you've prayed about this, sought wise counsel and discerned that you really are experiencing the discipline of God in this life, you ought to do two things. First, you ought to repent of your sin, right? Turn away from your sin and turn back to God in faith. And then secondly, ask the Lord to remove his discipline from you. This is exactly what David does at the beginning of his prayer in verse one. He, he realizes his sinful ways and then asks God to remove his hand of discipline. Let me read it for us. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We see in this psalm that the Lord really does, from time to time, discipline us. We also see that sin has natural consequences in this life. We see in the next part of this, this psalm that uh, the truth that we often hear from this pulpit, that sin never takes you where you want to go, and it never makes things better. In fact, following sin is often just a wake of destruction that just makes life worse. And so this is our second heading, the aftermath of sin. And we're going to see in this next section that, yes, the disciplining hand of God is still upon David, but now this discipline has moved outwards. He's experiencing the outward external aftermath that resulted from his sin. And he begins this part of the prayer by acknowledging that God sees him where he is. God sees his suffering. God acknowledges it. Look in verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. He's calling to mind this truth that God sees his suffering. God knows exactly what he's experiencing. He's essentially saying, God, you know what I'm going through. In fact, it's all happening within your holy will. He's recognizing what we quote often in our affirmations of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism 1, that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. He acknowledges that all this aftermath that he's about to explain in detail, it's within God's holy will. And so he says, there's nothing left for me to do. Nowhere else for me to turn except to the Lord in prayer. He says in verse 10, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes is also gone from me. 
You remember Richard preached on Psalm chapter 13 last week where David says, or David prays that God would light up his eyes, meaning he's close to death and he desperately needs God to bring the life back into him, to bring back that joy that he's given him. So here in our Psalm, David is saying he's so close to death, he feels like the light is entirely gone. He's praying for God to bring him back to life. Then in verse 11, he says, what might be some of the saddest words in this psalm. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. So what's happening here is that these physical sores and ailments all over David's body are causing his friends and his neighbors to abandon him in his time of need. This is a sad reality in our world, that our, our selfish and sinful inclination is to walk away from other people when their suffering gets hard. When a friend goes through a prolonged season of hardship, be it medical issues or relational problems or mental health problems, our, our, our natural tendency is to maybe help them a bit at the start and then start pulling away as their challenges continue to mount. Look what Derek Kidner wrote about this. It is ironical that the more a person needs human support, the less, by his abnormality, he naturally attracts it. The gospel has done the most to change this. By way of brief application, for the Christian, we have the motivation from the gospel not to run away from our friends when they're suffering, but to run towards them with hands that are ready to help. If you know of friends or other church members or neighbors or family members who are deeply suffering, then you ought to do whatever you can to care for them. You ought to surround them with prayer. You ought to bring meals to them. You ought to mow the lawn if that's helpful. You ought to find some way to help them in their time of need. And I think there's another application here, that if you are the one who's suffering, if you're the one currently going through medical or relational or other problems, don't suffer alone. Don't get to the point where you're like David, where all your friends have abandoned you. Call out for help. Yes, call out to the Lord for help. Absolutely do that. But call upon the church to help you. Ask the body of Christ to help you. This is what James encourages us in chapter 5 to do. If, is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're suffering right now, if you're really suffering, have you made that known to the elders of the church? Have you submitted prayer requests so that we can be in prayer for you? Have you reached out to your city group and asked them for help? Have you asked the deacons for financial help? Don't let yourself get to the point where your life lines up with David's, where it feels as if everyone has abandoned you. Please reach out for help. It's our joy to pray for you. It should be the joy of every Christian to walk alongside each other in seasons of hardship. You know, we hear often from this pulpit, and I'll say it again, that sin never takes you where you want to go, and it never makes things better. And sadly, that's exactly what happens in David's life. In verse 12, we see that as his friends are withdrawing, his enemies approach. He says, 
Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. I'm sure David never expected his sinfulness to take him this far. He would have never planned for his sin to create an opening for his enemies to begin to plan his demise. But I love what David's response is to these attacks. Many of us, if we were in David's shoes, would begin mounting counterattacks. If we knew our enemies were coming for our lives, we'd start planning ways to get revenge. But David wisely takes another route. Let me read verses 13 through 16. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them rejoice, let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. David's response to his enemies is not vengeance, it's silence. He doesn't plan counterattacks. He doesn't dream up ways to get back at them. Instead, he entrusts it to the Lord, and he waits on God. I think he's remembering a a principle that's taught in Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and David knows this to be true. Remember, David was experiencing the temporary disciplining wrath of God, but he knows and trusts that his enemies, his enemies, are enemies of God. To put it simply, he knows that the eternal wrath of God is coming for his enemies, and it's far worse than the disciplining wrath of God that he's experiencing. He trusts that they really will experience the totality of the wrath of God due unto them for their sin in the life to come. John Calvin comments, The man who is fully persuaded in his own heart that God is his defender will cherish his hope in silence, and calling upon him for help will lay restraint upon his own passions. We tend to not respond in this way. We tend to not respond with restraint over our own passions when we feel like we're being attacked. Why is that? Why is it that when a coworker lies and steals credit for your work, or when your children rebel against you, or when a friend stabs you in the back and betrays your trust, why is it that we naturally go to revenge? I think David has the right response here, to bring it to the Lord in prayer to restrain our passions and trust that the Lord will come, that he will answer your prayers. So once again, David is experiencing all this aftermath for his sin. His friends have abandoned him. His enemies are drawing near. His sin really has made life so much worse. He summarizes this in verse 17. For I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. He's ready to fall. The disciplining hand of God is so severe on his life that he feels like he could fall into death at any moment. And now he finally comes to the point of repentance. 
which brings us to our final heading, the salvation for sinners. Begins in verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. God's disciplining hand finally works and moves in David's heart to bring him to the point where he's actually sorry for his sin. After all, that is the purpose of discipline, right? To bring us to the point of feeling the weight of our sins. Sensing just how much we've rebelled against God and then crying out to him for mercy. But I think oftentimes, we're not sorry for the sin itself. Rather, we're sorry for the effects of sin. Maybe this sounds like, I'm sorry that you felt hurt by what I did. Or I'm sorry that things ended up the way they did. Or I'm sorry that I got caught. But what David is doing here is he's confessing actual iniquities. He's sorry for the sins themselves. Now, he doesn't name the actual sins here. There's a bit more broad, but he does confess sins, specific sins, elsewhere in Scripture. I think it's 2 Samuel chapter 12. After Nathan confronts David in his sin with Bathsheba, David turns to the Lord and confesses actual sins. You know, in our worship services, when we come to the time of confession of sin, of silent confession, are you confessing actual sins? Are you naming actual sins that you've done to rebel against the Lord? Or are you merely just feeling sorry about the aftermath of your sin? Listen to these words that we often use as the assurance of pardon in our services. This comes from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great promise that is. What a great promise that is, that if we confess our sins to the Lord, if we're sorry for our sins, that he will forgive us and cleanse us. That by his Holy Spirit's power, he will enable us to kill the sin that remains in our hearts, to truly repent and turn back to God. I think it's worth saying something about repentance here. Because what David is doing in these verses is an excellent example of what repentance ought to look like in the life of a believer. You know, uh, this whole school year, our middle school and high school students for Sunday school, we've been teaching through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and many of you have been memorizing those, and one of the ones that I've heard people memorizing, and we ought to all memorize, is, is question 87, which offers a really helpful definition for repentance. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You can see that pattern that David is following in this psalm. He comes to a, a true sense of his sin. He comes to realize just how much he desperately needs the mercies of God in his Christ, or the mercies of God in his life. He has grief and hatred over his sin, and he turns away from his sin and turns to God with full purpose of. I love this phrase, full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You know, truly being sorry for our sin includes having our minds set and determined on new obedience. 
endeavoring to change the sinful patterns of our life. Not just being sorry for the effects of our sin, but sorry for the sins themselves. And by God's grace, we ought to seek to kill that sin and to live in obedience. By way of illustration, uh, my oldest son, Levi, he's three years old, almost four, and he's gotten really into building tall towers of blocks, trying to get it as tall as his head. And somehow, his younger brother, Simon, has gotten really into destroying tall towers of blocks. So parents, you you can picture this happening. You know, one child builds a tall tower, and the next comes in like Godzilla and knocks it down. And so my wife, Nicole, or I will have to pull Simon aside and say, hey, buddy, you you hurt your brother's feelings. You, You destroyed his tower. You need to go say you're sorry. And so what Simon does, he goes back into Rome and says, sorry, Levi, and then you know what happens next, right? Levi builds another tower, and three minutes later, Simon knocks it down. He's not actually sorry for his sin. He's just sorry that he got caught. Are you sorry for your actual sin? When you confess your sins to God, are you really confessing your actual sins and seeking new obedience? Remember again the words from 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Now look with me at at verses 21 and 22. David cries out, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He's felt the fullness of his sin. God's discipline has brought him to repentance and he cries out for salvation from the Lord. You know, this whole psalm, David has been experiencing the disciplining hand of God. He's felt some form of the wrath of God upon him for his sin. He's earned this due to his own rebellion. But we know of another person who's felt the full weight of the wrath of God, not because of his own sin, but because of our sins. We know this to be Jesus Christ. We know that he's the one who lived a completely innocent and perfect life and yet took the wrath of God upon himself. The wrath that you and I have earned due to our sin, due to our rebellion against God. In fact, many of the words that David uses to describe himself here in Psalm 38 are the exact same Hebrew words that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 53. That chapter that's commonly called the suffering servant. The difference is David in Psalm 38 is suffering due to his own sin. Isaiah describes the suffering due for all of our sins, which was laid on Christ himself. That Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He took our place. He's our mediator. The eternal wrath that was due unto us for our sin was laid on Christ instead. Let me show you just some of the connecting words and phrases between Psalm 38 and Isaiah 53. There's a pastor, Timothy Brindle, who who says that these two chapters of Scripture almost read as if Isaiah had Psalm 38 open off to the side of his table while he was writing Isaiah 53. 
Look first for the word crushed. Psalm 38, David says, I'm feeble and crushed. Then Isaiah 53, describing Christ, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the same Hebrew word. David is feeling crushed because of the Lord's discipline upon him, but Christ, our suffering servant, is crushed for our iniquities. Next, look for the the Hebrew word that's translated either plagued or stricken. It's the same word. Psalm 38, my friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. And then Isaiah 53, yet we esteemed him stricken or plagued, smitten by God and afflicted. Or the word that's translated pain and sorrows in Psalm 38, my pain is ever before me. And the same Hebrew word in Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. However, he bore, he himself bore our sickness and carried our sorrows. And then a final similarity, look at how they respond to the oppression of their attackers and enemies. Remember, David kept silent. He says, I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Now look at Isaiah 53, describing Christ before he went to the cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see this exact thing happen in Luke 23. Jesus is on trial before Pilate, just before he went to the cross. And as he's on trial, there's false accusation after false accusation being hurled at him. And Luke 23 tells us that Jesus made no answer. He kept silent like a lamb headed for the slaughter. He willingly took the wrath of God upon himself Dear Christian, he willingly laid down his life for you. There will be times, there will be, when we experience the disciplining and correcting hand of God upon us. That may happen. In God's sovereignty, we may drift away from him and he will lovingly issue that discipline that draws us back into obedience. But when it comes to our right standing with God, When it comes to our justification in Christ, the forever right standing with God, the wrath that we deserve, Christ took upon himself. Look to him for your salvation. Cry out to him, as David does in verse 22, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let him be your salvation. Trust in him. Amen. Let me close this in prayer from Isaiah 53. Heavenly Father, we take heart that Christ has surely borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We rejoice in the knowledge that by his wounds we are healed. Lord, when we like sheep go astray, please correct us. Please discipline us. And please remind us of the truth of the gospel that you laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. Amen.